It's not every day that you get to sit down with one of your investing idols and talk about investing, talk about everything you've heard them or read from them. Today, I have Mr. Paul Merriman on the show. And Paul, thank you so much for taking the time out uh, to, first of all, come onto the show to talk to me, to correspond with me. Um, this is something that I will probably remember the rest of my life. Uh, and I hope that this video uh, will go on for many, many years and uh, hopefully many decades where people can uh, use it as a resource on how to build uh, financial wealth. So without further ado, Thank Mr. You. Paul Merriman. Thank you, Morris. I was hoping you were going to say, I hope this is the first of many such opportunities to share ideas because uh, I really like what you're doing. I, uh, I, I do. I envy your youth and your knowledge and your your commitment to helping people do better with their money and uh god if i could be where you are now when i was that age uh i'd have a lot more followers i'll tell you that and you will you will i i really appreciate the kind words paul um, speaking of being my age, let's go, uh, uh, back in time a little bit and tell us about, uh, how you got started in the financial services industry. Um, what's your background and kind of what was the big breakout moment for you where it, it puts you on the map in this, uh, industry? Well, I started when I was 19, I was married when I was 19 and, uh, the lady that I married, uh, her father, uh, was from the Ukraine, by the way. Uh, her father uh, loved the stock market. And I really have to laugh about his attitude because he trusted the stock market by buying individual securities. But he thought the people who ran mutual funds were a bunch of crooks, <laughs> which, you know, that is, I always thought he got the whole thing backwards, but he had a passion. He enjoyed it. Uh, and uh, uh, he taught me, I mean, he was the, he, he knew how to drink vodka and he, he taught me how to drink vodka and talk about stocks. So I started wanting to be a stock broker, thinking that's what I wanted to do uh, for my life was uh, not only to help people with their investments, but I would be able to meet people who had been successful and I would get to know how they did it. And, and it was going to be a great learning process. And so I started asking uh, companies who might be interested in having me go to work when I got out of college. No, no, no. And uh, they said, we don't hire kids out of college. You got to go out and get some experience. And then all of a sudden I get a phone call a few months before I'm about to graduate. And I had been to this guy's office too many times, evidently. And he said, would you really like a job? And I took it. And it was, it was a thrill to be part of the whole process. In those days, you were watching the tape go across and people were down there writing down numbers. There weren't, everybody didn't have a cell phone or something to, 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 to follow the market. You, you watched the tape. And, uh, and, and it, was a, it, was, it was fun. But it didn't take very long to figure out this is not built for the investor. This is really built for the people selling the investment products. And there's still some of that today. But the thing I love about the investment community today is if you know how to get to the right part of this community, 
There has never been a time in history when investing was as profitable as it's likely to be in the long run, as cost-efficient, as tax-efficient, as, as, as risk-efficient, diversification-wise. We didn't have all of this stuff. We didn't even have an index fund back in the mid-60s when I got started. But I got out of the business uh, after a few years just because it was pretty obvious what the conflicts of interest were and I just did not want to be part of that. So I did some other things for a number of years and got involved in some a small public company. And I got lucky at the you know, at the right place at the right time. And and by age 40, I was able to cash in whatever chips I had accumulated. I had this thing about a million dollars. I just like everybody else at that time. And by the way, as you know, even today, people are really excited about having a million dollars. So at age 40, I had that. And um, I basically kind of retired and started this investment advisory practice from scratch. I had I, I was a workaholic by nature. I wasn't going to be a workaholic anymore. I had learned my lesson. But uh, and I only wanted 200 accounts. That's all I wanted. And then that was it. I was just doing this for fun. And uh, it, it turned out that I took more than 200 accounts and the business built from being virtually nothing to about a billion and a half under management when, when, uh, uh, when I retired and sold my practice. But the big break was when I was invited on Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser. I suspect a lot of your folks don't know who Louis Rukeyser uh, is, was, uh, he had a show called Wall Street Week. And every Friday night, all over the country on, on, on PBS, uh, people would gather to watch the most popular uh, finance show on TV, almost the only uh, finance show on TV. I got invited to be a guest, and that got me exposed to millions of people in fact, the first weekend, uh, our office got 400 calls from people who wanted to, pardon me, get together and talk about how we might be able to help them with, with their money. And, and two weeks later, I was invited to come back on Nightly Business Report with a guy named Paul Kangas, another show. Paul's no longer around, but it was another popular show, not as popular as Wall Street Week, had about one-tenth the uh, the viewership, but still popular. And it was great exposure. And as you know, Morris, getting exposure, getting the public to judge you, of course, it's not easy to judge people in a few minutes, but you know, we all do our best to put our best foot forward and have people believe that we're sincere and honest and we're here to help. Uh, of course, that's what every as you know, that's what everybody says. But we found a good audience and people who liked what we were doing. And we were off and running. So it was it was a wonderful, wonderful time building that building that practice. Wow. And by the way, I'll just I'll just mention one more thing. We built our practice the way you're building what you're doing. We taught people how to do everything on their own. If they didn't want us to do it for them, they had the names of the funds we recommended. Everything was there for them to do on their own. 
And as I found out, like you'll find out someday, it's easy to go on a diet. It is hard to stay on a diet. And money is as emotional as food is. And so most people don't do a very good job on their own. Uh, myself included when it comes to trying to take care of the diet or trying to take care of, of their money. So uh, I think you're doing a great job. Keep at it. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I can totally relate with the diet. I've uh, packed on a few pounds since college and uh, every I am well versed in all the diets, but every diet I've gone on uh, a month later, uh, I fall off the train. So you always need, uh, eventually you're going to need a professional in your corner to talk you off the ledge when, when you want to, do something that's probably not in your best interest. So transitioning from you, you ran a, a fiduciary firm, I'm, I'm assuming a financial uh, advisory firm. Uh, so you transition from that now into running a foundation um, that is all about educating people so much so that uh, I was educated through a lot of the work that your foundation and you and Chris have, and Daryl have put out. Talk to us a little bit about the, uh, the foundation, how that idea came to be and uh, kind of how people can uh, help support the foundation or how they can get more information about your work there. Well, I, I appreciate that. That's a, that's a, that's a, a great opening for me because there is something that every one of your viewers can do for me. And it's not about writing me a check. And I'll, I'll, I'll mention that uh, in, in a second. Um, I really didn't know what I was going to do exactly uh, after I sold my firm and that negotiation to sell it went on for many months. So it wasn't like, like it just happened overnight. And um, uh, I knew I wanted to take part of the proceeds from the sale of the firm and try to help others. I was thinking in terms of maybe a scholarship fund at, uh, at Western Washington University, uh, where I graduated just uh, in Bellingham, Washington, a small, beautiful school. Uh, and that was going to be it. My wife, she says, come on, you can do something more than that. And so I decided, well, okay, maybe I could convince them to start a, a, a course on personal investing, not on personal finance. They had that, but just not investing with a goal to make sure that every student who we could get to take the class, and I had hoped someday every student who came through Western would be exposed to this information, make sure they know the right thing to do with a 401k, what an index fund is. In fact, I had the idea, I would give them the test at the first of the quarter, 100 multiple choice questions. And then at the end of the quarter, if they could answer all of those 100 in a multiple choice test, and they got 100, they, got, they would get an A, because you only need to do 100 things. In fact, it's not even 100. But but we wanted to teach them the basics. Those kids were never taught what a PE ratio is. Imagine an investment course where nobody talks about what the PE ratio is because a PE ratio doesn't matter when you're trying to get people to put money in a target date fund or in an index fund and so on. So I changed my idea. I decided to fund this course at the same time I was down in San Miguel de Allende in Mexico, where my wife and I had a home. We just sold it this last December. And I went to a writer's conference. 
And there at the conference was a lady teaching a course on how to publish your own book. And I thought, whoa, this is what I need to do. I have published books before, but I'm thinking little books and, and shorter projects. And I hate waiting around for the publisher to, you know, a year or two before it gets to, to, the, to the audience. And so Asia Griffin was my teacher. She is still an employee today uh, and lives in, in, in Spain, uh, where she's our marketing director. But we produced three simple little books, one for first-time investors, one on 101 investment decisions guaranteed to change your financial future. And the third one uh, is on get smart or get screwed, how to select the best and get the most from your financial advisor. And those, that's it. That was all we had, a deal with the university to support the class and three books. And then Market Watch asked me to write. And then we start a podcast. And all of a sudden, I'm back to my old working habits, doing what I love to do. And when I worked in the investment business, I was the, almost always the first one in, always the last one to leave. And, um, and I shouldn't say always, but usually. And so here I am again, doing what I love. And that is, is helping people take care of their money. If I could leave you, or any of your listeners with one thing new that would change their financial future, and it led to an extra half of 1% return in their portfolio for the rest of their life, it will probably add somewhere between a million and $2 million to what they will get in income in retirement and what they will leave to others. And then if they actually took the time to learn that one, maybe they would learn two or three or four or five. And I'm not kidding. I mean, there are many ways. And I'm sure you talk about all of them on, on, your, on your shows, Morris. But in, in, my, in my book, we're talking millions, 12 simple strat, um, ways to supercharge your retirement. That, by the way, was the wrong title. Because it's not interesting to a lot of young people. We should have said 12 simple ways to supercharge your investments. That would have been more appropriate for a, for a 30 or a 20, whatever old, old uh, reader. That book is, is probably the best opportunity I have to create change in people's lives. And I'm going to take you up. I'm going to answer your question. What can people do to support our foundation well, we do have people who write us checks. That's fine. But the biggest thing that you could do is you could download a free PDF of that book, read it, and then forward it. The reason we make it, yeah, I mean, you can buy it at Amazon if you want. That's fine. And the, our foundation gets the, uh, the, the royalty or whatever it is. But what we really want is to get people to, to consume that information, okay it, bless it. I mean, I, I'm not asking you to send it without reading it because I do want you to read it <laughs> and then forward it to others and friends and family and associates at the office, people just getting started at work, having to 
select through a through, through the their 401k offerings it's in the book and i hope that that is if you just do that one thing for us i promise we'll be doing lots for you i really believe that and it, i have something to to let you know so and i have a little private member community um, it's a, like a monthly subscription of it's $5, but you get access to me in this chat forum with a bunch of tools. And one of our members downloads your book. They went on the, on the website and put it their email. They got the free PDF. They read it and they shared it with the group and everybody in the group started reading the book. So ex- everything oh that God. you're saying now is actually coming true in real life, at least in, uh, on my side, in my private community, and um, now it's uh, they're starting to talk about the the two funds for life book. And I mean, it's it's funny how you're mentioning just the, the smallest idea of a seed planted. And now it's blossomed into everything. My first introduction to you, actually, I have to admit, I, I am and still always was a boglehead at heart. And my first introduction to Paul Merriman, I was listening to. Uh, the Bogleheads podcast. And as you were describing, you branched out from um, uh, just a university deal and a few PDF books to uh, your own podcast. And then you started becoming a, a writer for Market Watch. And then you were a guest on other podcasts. Well, this is how I found you. You were a guest on the Bogleheads podcast, I think early 2020. And um, no exposure to you whatsoever. But because you're on that podcast and because that is such a trusted source for a lot of uh, Boglehead investors, the guests that they bring on, we really, after that episode, we go out there, we vet them, we look at their work and how does this compare to what, you know, Jack Bogle would have wanted us to do. And, you know, that's the kind of investors most of us are as far as Bogleheads. So you opened my eyes on that podcast to small cap value. Um, I know Rick, uh, he didn't give you a lot of time to talk about small cap value, but you talked, you, you started mentioning that it's, it's one of those things that could, if, if it's paired with the right portfolio, it could really kick off uh, uh, as far as over the next 10, uh, or the next 20, 30, 40 years, uh, how much money you can have in retirement. And at, at the end game for all of us is we're doing this so we can have money in retirement. So for a young investor, let's say somebody in their 20s or 30s who has uh, probably follow the advice by the S&P 500, by the total U.S. stock market. That's all you need. Um, how could they benefit from a small cap value fund um, to kickstart their uh, early investing? Because I think a lot of the advice online, and I've fallen victim to this, is just buy the S&P 500 and you're going to do great. And it's not fake advice. It's true. You, If you just bought the S&P 500 over 40 years, contribute to it, you're going to do great, but there is a sort of an opportunity cost that you're leaving on the table. So how, how did you, first of all, figure out about small cap value? Because I accredit everything I know about small cap value to you. So how'd you figure it out? Well, and then for our younger investors, um, how important would small cap value be in their portfolios now? Well, uh, I will uh, honestly say uh, I have never had an original thought. Uh, about investing. All I've done is learn from others. And I've learned at the feet of some of the greatest teachers, by the way, you don't have to go sit in the same room with them anymore. But I have learned from Dr. Fama and Dr. French. And it was in 1993 or four 
that I was first exposed to dimensional funds and the work of Dr. Fama and Dr. French. And that was a life changer for me. And you, you really have to, in some ways, go a long way forward for me to run into the other life changer, and that is actually meeting for 90 minutes with John Bogle. Because uh, the fact is, John Bogle didn't tell the whole story. I mean, I, I don't mean that he lied. I'm not saying that at all. But he thought that Fama and French's work was terrific, that it was great work, and it was it was very competitive. They were great competitors, he said. Um, but But John Bogle, and this is where he helped me, he was critical of the advice that I was given, giving was so complex. And he thought that if I really wanted to help people, uh, and he did the wiggle of his finger thing that was just, I'll never forget the wiggle, uh, that, that if I wanted to help people, make it simpler. Because he really had a different goal than I have. And, 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 and this is as this is the pure John Bogle that I felt I knew from his books and then from meeting him. His whole thing was making sure that people had enough. I, along with the help of, of Chris Pedersen and Daryl Balls and Craig Apple, Craig Apple is the man who walked into our lives and handed us at no charge on a silver platter, a lifetime investment calculator that people can take all of our data and put it to work in, in their own life, if you want to, with their own numbers. It's, 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 it's marvelous what, what, what happened there. But the difference is that while John Bogle wants you to have enough, I honestly mean it. I want you to have more than enough. And the reason I say that is not because it's not about greed, but I'll tell you this, we do a lot of work in terms of distributions in, in retirement. And that's not something a 30 year old spends a lot of time thinking about, I don't think, unless they're trying to, to be a member of the fire uh, community and they want to retire when they're 40. But normally that stuff's that can be taken care of later. Well, the fact is there's something that you can't take care of later easily, and that is to make the decision to retire when you have enough or when you have more than enough. I didn't retire when I had enough. I retired when I had multiples of enough, but even 50% more than enough changes how you approach taking money out. So not only can you take out more money in terms of, of, the, of the dollars you take out, but you can take out a higher percentage. I take out five. My wife and I take out 5%. We're talking about going to six. And yet you read in, the, in, the, in, a, in a lot of the literature, well, it's four and a half or four and a quarter or whatever it is, is the safe withdrawal. That's the safe withdrawal rate for people who have enough. And if we have more than enough, it isn't just that we can take out more, but my wife and I, we try to give away 30% of what we get every year as, as, as a thank you to the people and, and to support the things that, that we feel uh, moved by. And so my feeling is, 
if you can take some simple steps, and I'm just going to give you one ever so simple step here and show you what a life changer it could be. You put 10% of your portfolio in small cap value. Let's say you're all equity. Just for the sake of discussion, let's say you're all equity for the rest of your life. And you put, as you're saving 10%, 9% into the S&P 500, or you could put it into a target date fund and 1% into small cap value. Based on the past, and, and, and Chris Pedersen did a study starting in 1928, starting with January, 40 years, February, 40 years. He looked at every 40-year period. And on average, if you simply added 10% small cap value to a portfolio then of 90% S&P 500, it was an average additional return of 0.52, as low as 0.23 as high as 0.72, but the average was a half a percent. And in the book, I'm looking for every opportunity to pick up an extra half a percent. And there is one, and that half a percent of that 1% or, or in essence, 10% of your money going into small cap value, that is not a life changer in terms of risk. In fact, if you take a portfolio, that is half in S&P and half in small cap value. And you add up all of the losing years since 1970, because there were 10 losing years since 1970. With that combination, the average or the, the, the accumulation of all the losses with the S&P 500 only was 145%. If you added up all the losing years with the 50-50 strategy, it was 123%. You actually lost less money. Not very much, by the way, but, but, but not enough to, to, to scare you. And what we don't want to do is we don't want to scare you in the process because then you, then you give up and you throw in the towel. So is there something simple you can do? Sure. Add value a little bit a lot, the younger you are. And by the way, this is the beauty of Chris Pedersen's book, Two Funds for Life. I mean, in the back half of my book is devoted to Two Funds for Life, but his book is for engineering. I mean, it is a deep dive into Two Funds for Life. But when you're talking about a commitment to investing for the rest of your life and you, and you don't mind seeing a lot of numbers, his work I think is marvelous. And by the way, I really think he'd be a great guest on, on your show uh, someday. I really, I really do Morris. Absolutely. I've, uh, after speaking to you, I will reach out to him. I'm in the middle of a move right now. So this, uh, ah. my, my kid's nursery is gonna, I'm moving places. I got to reset that up. So I get my office back and then hopefully the next guest I do bring on is Chris. Now, I still want to stay on topic with small cap value just because of how powerful it is. It's something that I talk about. Um, recently, I've had a, a, my first kid, a newborn, six-month-old now. Um, but the day he was born, I, I actually took $5,000 and put it in a small cap value fund. And I said, this is for him. Um, and then when he – I'll educate him on this and when, he, you know, when he's 30 – and then I, I would like for him to take this and pass it on to his kid and so yeah. forth and so forth. 
You mentioned um, thinking of this a little bit differently, uh, which really, I think, uh, magnifies the power of small cap value, but also the power of putting it away for a few generations. If you want to touch on um, kind of how you like to think about it and how I think every new father, every new mother could potentially do this uh, over the course of whether it's saving a dollar a day or $365 a year could do this for their kid and, and build a, 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 a legacy that would be unimaginable otherwise. Well, uh, I really believe in the idea of looking at investing as Warren Buffett does. Now, this is not, uh, this is why I have absolutely no interest in cryptocurrency. I do not invest with the idea of making a lot of money in a short period of time that has, I just, I don't, I've never had any particular interest in that. Well, I did when I was about 20. <laughs> I did for uh, yeah, about a yeah. year and I learned my lesson. But, but I, I do think that if we, if we change our mindset about what this is we're investing in, and we can't be Warren Buffett. We can't go out and spend all this time uh, looking at individual companies. And the good thing is we have evidence that a, I'll call it a company. I don't want to call it a mutual fund. There's a company out there. And that company represents anywhere from 500 to 1,000 other companies. You could almost call it what they called a conglomerate in the, in the 60s. That was a big deal. I mean, you wanted, you wanted to get a hot stock, invest in one of those companies that were conglomerates. Or kind of what Warren Buffett, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, right? Yes. Uh, a holding company of many other companies. A holding company, exactly. And, and, and so uh, the, the problem is we're not in his, his, uh, his group where people will write him big checks uh, to let him go ahead and do all the buying. But you can. Uh, you can put away $25 a month. And you can, in essence, invest in a company, if you think of it this way. The company happens to be an index that represents small cap value. And the only reason I'm talking small cap value instead of the S&P 500 is because I think you'll make more over the long run. And, and, and this is about building, in essence, a bigger business than to just the, the $25 a month. But let me tell you where, and, and since you have a young a child, Morris, I, I want you to, to think if you might not even consider setting up this separate account, and you put away $25 a month until he is um, 21. Mm -hmm. So you have less than a $7,000 investment. Uh, in, in this, you're putting away 3000 I'm sorry, $300 a year, uh, and you invest that in this company. And, and so th th that company then uh, will grow. We, we never know. I started my investment management company, and I made one investment in terms of buying stock in the company. I invested $15,000. That was it. I loaned it money a couple of times uh, because they had to make payroll, but I never put any more equity into that company. And I'm thinking the same way about this $25 a month. And so by the time that child is 21, 
there is probably enough money in that. And I'm not looking for the 16%, which is the average return on small cap value, average 40-year return looking back to 1928. I'm not thinking that at all because people didn't know about small cap value. I'm using 12 as the number in terms of planning as to how big our company might get to be. But by the time we're at age 21, I believe there will be enough money in that pot to fund the first five years of a Roth IRA or a 401k Roth, okay? So you have converted, your company has grown and you have positioned it for being being treated favorably tax-wise, which is... One of the expenses we could control in theory, how do you make an extra half percent? Don't pay any taxes on this investment. That's another way you can make an extra half of 1%. So you fund this IRA for five years. The biggest lesson that kid should get from that is you didn't make me very much money with your idea here, Dad, <laughs> I put in thirty thousand, and it's only worth about thirty-six or thirty-eight thousand. I mean, I thought I was going to get rich. You promised me millions on this company, and I said, "Well, we're not there yet." And you just leave it. The corporation has been established. It's like I put my fifteen thousand in. You'll have put, in essence, your fifteen thousand in. And then you just let it go until that child, let's say, is theoretically 65. That money has compounded, let's say, at 12%. And let's say the risk is not the market. That's not the risk. The risk is the kid cashing out the account. That's the real risk. But you leave it in the company. Johnson from Fidelity, he just passed away. I will, I will bet anything that... He held the shares of his company until he died, or his daughter has them, or the family has them, because he trusted the investment to be there for the long term. Now, he maybe didn't have to take any money out of Fidelity to enjoy life. I don't know how he did everything, but I do know this, that if I start taking out 5% a year of whatever I have in that account, and it continues to be in the company because the company is a good company. It has a hundred year. In fact, by that time, it'll have a 150 year a, a track record. And so you take this money out to live on 5% a year. And then, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I've got an idea how you could increase that by 50% immediately. I, I forgot about this. The child goes to work for a company that matches the $6,000 a year. So now if they put in six and the company puts in three, not impossible. By the time they're 65, they now have 50% more. And so that's another way you can add another million or so to the portfolio easy enough. And you leave it in there and it continues to do 12. I am not pretending for a minute you get 12 every year. You, you, I'm sure you all know that. I know, for example, the 
the the small cap value fund that we use in our best in class was up 42% last year. And uh, and right, but this year so far, uh, be, today was a bad day in the market. It's down about one and a half percent for the year, which by the way, put them in the top 18% of all small cap value funds. So small cap value isn't doing great this year. There will be lots of years it isn't going to be great. As a matter of fact, if you want to see the greatest teaching tool that I know, you will look, in fact, you can have a link to it, Morris, in, in, in your notes. It's the table of the S&P 500. And by the way, four color, S&P 500, the small cap value, large cap value, and small cap blend since 1928. You can look at it one year at a time, and you can see who was on first and who was last every year. You'll see many years the S&P 500 is right up there at the top, and many years the S&P 500 is right down there at the bottom, and that's the reality of investing. And if you can show me any better reality than that table, I would like to see it because I'm looking for new teaching tools. But this could be done. Every one of my children, I really smiled inside when you mentioned 5,000. Every one of my grandchildren, as they're born, has received a $10,000 investment in a trust that they cannot touch until they're 65. And then they get to take out uh, 5% a year. And when they die, all the money goes to charity. And they get to pick the charity. Wouldn't it be neat if it turned out to be the Merriman Financial Education Foundation? That'll be a full circle. That is uh that is amazing. Anyway. Paul. That is amazing. And I think uh, the point here is a lot of us look at these investments as mutual funds. And if we just had one account for our kid that we can set aside and think about it, like you said, through a scope of a business, like a Warren Buffett does, or like any successful business owner does no, a lot of us that start businesses, my business included, I'm sure your business, all we focus about is, is growing the business. We make the initial investment and we go spend the rest of our life growing our business. We don't care how much the business is worth. We don't really care about any of that. We just care that we're doing something that's helping our business grow. And if we teach our kids this about small cap value and this just one account to treat it this way, you still have all your other accounts that you can do however you feel comfortable. Um, it it's just really powerful. And I think it can help build generational wealth. And I agree. The only risk is the kid messes it up. And that's my biggest fear as a father. Now I never had this mindset before until I became a father. Uh, But I'm looking at the Utma accounts and I'm going, well, at 18, he he gets the Utma account. So I I can, you know, spend 18 years of his life telling them, do this, do this. But at the end of the day, it's in, in, in their hands. So I like the idea of a trust, something like, uh, like how you set up where, don't touch this till 65. This is a business. And then at the end, you don't get to just enjoy the spoils of this. You live off of a reasonable amount and the rest is really going to go to a good cause. Uh, whether it, like you said, to, to, to your charity or any charity of their choosing, if they're passionate about um, it, it really drives home the point, the power of small cap value. The reason uh, why, as soon as you mentioned it, I was attracted to it 
And the reason now it's a hill that I stand on, I'm willing to die for, for the next <laughs> 70, 80 years, however long I'm doing this. I don't know. They keep telling us that they're, we're going to be living longer and longer. Hopefully uh, I'll be talking about small cap value because I've seen the power of it. Um, and, and not as a way that you should go a hundred percent all in, which again, there could be cases made or not. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a very small change. And, and like Paul's book talks about these 12 uh, simple things that you can change that can each get you a little bit of, of a, a half a percent and a half a percent is huge in the terms of a 40 year investment and in, in time horizon. It's huge. Uh, whether it's uh, ha- having a financial advisor or doing it yourself, whether it's uh, being in tax favored accounts or having tax drag and taxable accounts and uh, the, the, the way you set up your allocation, the, how much you contribute, how much you save. So there's all these wonderful uh, steps. Uh, so I highly encourage you guys to go uh, to Paul Merriman's website. Uh, I'll leave the link to the, to the, to the website uh, where you can uh, support the foundation if you'd like, where you can also get uh, the uh, PDF uh, copy of his book. And uh, I'll try to find the Amazon link and I'll pop that in there too. I like to read hard copy, actual physical books. So for those of you that are like that, I'll leave the link for that as well. Paul, do you have 15 minutes where we can do some uh, Q&A uh, from our private member sure, community? Of course, of course. Love Thank to. You. Thank you so much. Uh, Paul has been really gracious with his time. So uh, first question I have here is some of these might be hard hitting. Hopefully they're not. But um, we have some really sharp people in this group. Uh, one one member noticed uh, your best in class ETF for large cap blend is a actively managed factor fund with a 15 basis point expense ratio. Uh, I believe this is a Vantis fund. We, yes. we call it active management in our group and probably the Bogleheads do too. It's got low turnover. It's technically an index, but they do use factor investing there. Why would, uh, why do you think that fund would be better than something uh, that I recommend or maybe a lot of the stuff online uh, or on the Bogleheads uh, forum where it's like buy VT or VTSAX? Why go the factor route with, uh, with a large cap blend fund? Well, this is uh, best in class. Uh, this is not about uh, um, the biggest uh, fund in the class. Uh, if you looked at our recommendations at Vanguard, uh, you would note that we, we do have a more traditional recommendation for large cap blend. That would be true at Fidelity and Schwab as well. But in this particular portfolio, and I think the people who are following Chris Pedersen's work, because Chris is the one who does this, this guy is so dedicated and so smart. Now, there's only so much you can know about a mutual fund. And and on top of that, what you know today may not be exactly the same tomorrow. So there is always guesswork in, in, uh, in, in thinking about the future. But we know that smaller historically uh, produces a better premium. Not a lot, but better. Uh, we know that a, uh, a higher uh, book value versus the market price uh, tends to create a higher premium. So what Chris did was he found a fund that the companies are large. The average size company is, I think, almost $60 billion. Uh, and the, the book to market price is 
higher than the S&P 500 or the total market index. So you're getting a bit smaller, a bit more value orientation. Remember, we are not 50-50 value and growth. We are overweighted to value, whether it's large value or small value, and, and because the evidence is that if you, if you have the S&P 500, the reason it underperforms the large value historically is because it does have mostly growth. So we've tempered that exposure a little bit. Now, remember that that is only a small part of the portfolio because, well, it depends on whether you're looking at the 10 fund or you're looking at four funds or two funds. But, but, but the bottom line is it is just the attempt to squeeze out a little bit extra but still be in the ballpark of, of that asset class. It's the same thing, by the way, with the, the small cap value fund. That has uh, some special aspects of it compared to the, the value other value funds. Uh, not only uh, is it uh, it, it, well, it's got high book value to market price, but it has higher quality uh, stocks inside of that portfolio. So it's, it's not an index fund. DFA doesn't have index funds. These are funds that are built specifically to meet a certain asset class. And, and so what they do is they look for the best companies in that asset class, but there are many, many ways to identify small cap value. And the returns can be very different. The average small cap value fund last year was up 30%. And, and Avantis was up 42 Now, there'll be other years that having that, that tilt uh, to quality won't be beneficial. In fact, it'll for some reason be harmful. I just don't know what the reason is. But that's the nature of the of the process. The question is, what do you want for the long term in your company? I certainly don't want somebody guessing what's going to be hot next. I don't want that at all. And I don't trust that. In fact, all of us, every one of us has got to figure out, ask the question, what group of specialists or experts do we trust? Is it Wall Street? Uh, is, it, is it our neighbor on Main Street or members of our family that claim they know a lot about investing? Or is it the academic community? I call it University Street. I personally have, have thrown my lot, uh, as I think you have too, Morris, as you, you have said, I am going to, to believe in what University Street is, is showing in their research, not what Wall Street wants me to believe. Remember, cryptocurrency is not coming out of the academic community. I mean, it's, it's a very difficult thing for people to deal with because the money is so easy. If we ever wonder why poor kids in New York would get into the drug trade, well, it's obvious why they get into the drug trade. The money is easy, but it's risky. And so is cryptocurrency. And our heroes, Warren Buffett and, and Benjamin Graham, the father of security analysts, uh, analysis, he said, when, when you buy a stock, a price is what you pay. Value is what you get. And Warren Buffett and, 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 and these people at the value end of the industry, 
they are making decisions based on value. They have a way to quantify. I have no idea how to quantify the value of cryptocurrency. Well, open your eyes, Paul. Look <laughs> at what price it is today. And I say, I know what price it is. I don't know how to identify the value. Yeah. I've uh, I've had I've been one of those I don't want to say haters but I've been a hater of cryptocurrency because same same ideology I've been saying to people there is no way to quantify it and a lot of people come back at me and say well it's the future or the technology behind it and we don't know if it's the future and yes the technology is great but it doesn't mean that I was trading US dollars and and euros before so why would I trade uh, virtual currency now? It's, it's, it's exactly. a space that is not part of, it's not conducive to wealth building. So if you didn't do it before, just because you think it's the future now, there's, there's no evidence to, first of all, show that it's the future, but there's no evidence to show that trading currencies, real or made up, works as, as, as a way to build wealth. So, but I, well, I like- well, we, do, we do know though, by the way, just quickly, we know that 3% of the people who try to trade securities on a short-term basis, make money in a year. And, 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 and that's, it, it could be a different 3% the following year. Uh, and I really worry for young people that they are blowing the chance to put serious money away for the long term. And I'll tell you, I was called crazy in 1999. I got hate mail from people who said, I, I just was in a different century. And it turns out I was almost in a different century. You, you didn't understand the internet. <laughs> I didn't understand technology and the internet. And I came out with a long article in January of 2000, where I made the claim, this is not a new era. By the way, I couldn't have been wrong. And this is the reality of life. I was lucky. I was lucky that I was right. And so are my clients, by the way. Yeah. And I think it's it's always it repeats itself. Sometimes it looks different, but it's always the same story. Whether it's the go-go funds of the '60s, uh, the tech funds of 2000s, even the EV uh, SPAC stocks of of recent, it, it, it's always a big. I, I always uh, like to pull the the max chart and draw draw a big triangle on it. It's always a big run up, and then it surely always collapses. So, uh, thank you for answering that. That's something I think that's been on a lot of our minds about. We, we believe in the value premium. We believe in the size premium, uh, but we also believe in low cost. And I think I've been probably um, struggling with this myself. When I see something uh, like a uh, four or six basis points, uh, small cap value fund, Fidelity has one, FISVX, yeah. huge fan of it. it. It tracks the Russell 2000 or Vanguard has one uh, VTWV tracks the Russell 2000s, 15 basis points. And then I see an Avantis fund that might be 20. And I, in my mind, for me, I think as a Boglehead, costs matter so much that I have a hard time un it's, it's looking past focus. that. And no, it's, it is the wrong focus yes. because if, if all it is is about costs, if bonds are the lowest cost investment, there you go. There's your answer. Be in bonds. And we know better than that. And that's because we're in stocks. Bonds are relatively simple. The range of return differences, basically, if you look at mutual funds, going to be the quality and going to be the expenses. But once you get into the equity markets, 
it is more expensive to manage a small cap portfolio than it is an S&P 500. Having said that, it doesn't mean that, that if somebody came out with the same thing Avanza says and charged five basis points or one basis point less, yeah, let's get it. Let's take it home and put it in our pocket instead of theirs. I'm okay with that. Yeah. But there isn't another fund Correct. at a lower price doing what Avantis is doing. Yeah. And I think we, we need to shift our focus a little bit away from cost matter to these other metrics like book to price, the size premium. Uh, those matter a little bit more than cost. As long as costs are reasonable is what I've come to learn. I think uh, the how much you're, you, you stand to gain from these other factors is a lot more than how much you stand to lose by maybe paying an extra five or 10 basis points, which in the long run is not going to be, you know, what's going to uh, make or break the performance of the fund. Uh, one other question here, kind of uh, running tight on time, but one other question that I have is uh, a private member wants to know, how do you personally manage your retirement accounts? You kind of touched on this earlier and I don't know how much you want to share, but um, how much do you decide to take out? Do you uh, take out in bad times as well as good times? Do you leave some in cash for bad times? Kind of what's your strategy for people who are getting close to retirement, uh, what would be an ideal strategy or what is one that you follow that you think is, is ideal? Well, the one that my wife and I use uh, is set up the way it is because I am very emotional uh, about, about money. Now, I, it's, it's not that I want a lot of money. It, I'm not greedy about it. I'm afraid of I'm afraid of loss in many ways. So the first thing about how I manage my money is I don't. My money is all managed by the old company that the, the Merriman Wealth Management Company manages it. And the reason being is that uh, I want somebody else taking care of it because I would start looking at the list of bad news. And I would at some point want to not get out of the market for the long term, but I'd want to step aside and just wait till the, till the smoke clears. It's a terrible thing to do. We all know that. And so uh, it's kind of like I'm, I'm about, what, 30 pounds, maybe more than that, overweight. I know how I could be lighter is have somebody else cook for me, and what I was served is what I ate. <laughs> But I just like eating way too much to do that. But when it comes to money, I don't want to do it. The other thing is, I don't want to take monthly distributions out of an account. So my wife and I take 5%. Remember, I oversaved. So I can take 5%, maybe 6 I take 5% out the first week of the year. And that money is there to live on for the year. And if the market goes up at the end of that year, then we have more money to take out. If it goes down, we have less money to take out. And there's lots of evidence. We've done tables after table about distributions using that variable or flexible strategy. It's a great defensive strategy. It's almost unbelievable how great a defensive strategy it is until you see the numbers. So why I do that, I just don't want to be thinking about the market going up and down and the market's down. Oh, I don't want to take out money now. Can we hold back on? The, I just want to know what I've got for what I want for the year, which includes money we give away and, and, the, and, and everything. So 
Uh, I try to take all the bad emotions out of the process that get in the way of a good life. Because what I want to do is what I'm doing right now. I love my morning coffee, my lunch with my wife, my dinner with my wife. I love our tea in the afternoon. I love my afternoon nap. Right before I did this today, I had a nice nap. I feel great. And I don't want to deal with stuff that have to do with worry. Because I worked too hard and saved too hard. Uh, too many long hours that now I, by the way, I'm sorry I spent all that time at work rather than with my kids, but that's who I was. And in a way, that's who I still am, which makes me a good teacher, but not the greatest husband or the greatest father. I mean, these are life choices that we make. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's good insight because a lot of us, um, while we're retirements are far, far uh, distance away, I think a lot of us would like to, once we enter retirement, not have to worry about uh, the accumulation phase anymore, not have to worry about um, all the money that we're saving. We just want to be able to withdraw a certain percentage and say, this is what I have, sort of like budgeting. This is my income. This is how much yeah. I'm making this year um, and not worry about anything else and learn how to live within those means and I think that's great advice, and uh, hopefully some of the uh, – we have a few private members who are approaching retirement. They always ask me, how do you set up for retirement? I'm like, I have no idea. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm just not thinking that. If I am thinking for retirement. This is what I'm doing for my retirement, but I'm not thinking the actual asset allocation, the nitty-gritty of how much am I going to withdraw, how much am I going to be in bonds, uh, all that. I, I feel like it's too far out for me. I think of what's kind of in five-year chunks – you know, what, how much do I want to save in the next five years? How much do I want to save five years after that? And then once I approach closer to that, I feel like I'll be thinking more about it. But thanks for answering that. Thank you for I, your... I, oh, I want to I, I I I say, I know I'm out of time, but I got to say this. Your responsibility is to get a hold of my distribution tables and read them and look at them and pretend you are them. Because once you get those tables in your mind, you will see exactly what to tell people to do. It is not a complex process, but you, you, I think you have to bury yourself in the same numbers that you buried yourself in with small cap value and then think like an old person. It's not all easy as an old person. And you're lucky to be young. And thank you for having me on the show. I really do appreciate it, Morris. My pleasure, Paul. Thanks for the homework assignment. I will dig into that so that I, <laughs> you know, I can't, I can't claim to come on here and want to be an educator and then not want to educate myself. So every, every opportunity I get, I will, Great. I will make sure I learn more. So thank you for your time today. It's been a privilege and an honor. Um, and hopefully, uh, like you mentioned that I failed to mention in the beginning, hopefully this is something that we can uh, do again in the future, whether it's on, uh, on your end or my end or bringing Chris on and, uh, hopefully, uh, uh, many, many more uh, videos and podcasts to come. You got it. I'm, I'm on. All right. All right, guys. Well, that's it. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. As always, remember, move obstacles, keep investing.